case. The trial is now set for October 23rd, a date sure to move. And an 84-year-old Missouri man will stand trial for shooting an unarmed teenager who simply went to the wrong door. A Missouri judge heard from several witnesses today, including the victim, Ralph Yarl. The black teenager was going to pick up his younger brothers and sisters, and he accidentally went to the wrong house. That is when a white elderly man shot through the front door, hitting Yarl in the head. He has made almost a full recovery. I'm Elizabeth Fargus. We'll see you again tomorrow night. Right now, On Balance with Leland Vitter, coming up next. On the program tonight, fentanyl in the classroom. Overdoses triple among American teens. Can schools be the last line of defense in the deadly epidemic? Young versus old. I'm the only person that can win in a landslide. Vivek's rise brings new attacks from both sides. That's not what I've said, but but you you can play Nikki Haley's lies. I have an exact quote. While majorities say it's time the older leaders pass the torch is absolutely unacceptable. And crisis deepens. Sanctuary cities hit the boiling point over caring for migrants. What's more important? Keep a promise or protecting your people. It's a car driving into town that had a a cow in it. And that's a lot of bull. Cops pull over Howdy Doody and his personal driver on a Nebraska highway. Imagine trying to pass on the left with this steer riding shotgun. And good Thursday evening to you. I'm Elizabeth Pran. Leland is off tonight. And first, why every parent should be alarmed about the poison flooding our school systems. The fentanyl epidemic is spiraling out of control across the nation, and we simply don't have an answer for it. In fact, it's a war we seem to be losing. States have enacted 100 laws to raise awareness and punish dealers, but it isn't slowing overdose deaths. In fact, more than 106,000 Americans died of a drug overdose in 2021, up from under 20,000 in 1999. When you break down overdose deaths by the type of drug, fentanyl is at the top. So if you look at your screen, that gray line in the graph, it's a massive increase in deadly overdoses compared to drugs such as cocaine, heroin, and antidepressants. It's even scarier when you think about deaths among teenagers, gone in an instant way before their time. 84% of teens who died of a drug overdose last year had fentanyl in their system. Yes, 84%. Behind each number is a family torn apart by this deadly drug. Look at your screen. These are some of the young people who have died in an overdose in recent years. DEA calls this display the faces of fentanyl, showcasing the young people who have died because of just one dose. Most of them probably didn't even know what they were taking. In March, Leland spoke with Rebecca Kiesling, a mother who lost two of her sons to the deadly drug. She says her sons warned her about drugs being spread in their school. My son, Caleb, told me that it started with kids who were bringing uh, prescription pills from their parents' medicine cabinets, unlocked medicine cabinets. And so I think they had the illusion that they're still getting, you know, pills that were stolen from parents' homes. Today, the Biden administration announced $450 million in funding to fight drug overdoses. Much of the money will go to raising awareness among young teenagers. Teenagers, rather. President Biden spoke about this very issue today. Fentanyl is a new and really, really 
dangerous addition. More people, more young people, no, not just young people, are being dying as a consequence of ingesting fentanyl. Sometimes not even knowing it's in the drug they're taking. So the federal government is trying to do its part. It is. Is it fair for schools to be the last line of defense? As a parent, it's hard to think about teachers educating kids on drug overdoses or even having to try to bring an overdosing teen back to life with a Narcan shot. Back to school used to mean reading, writing, and math, and now preventing students from dying has joined that list. Dr. Ember Conley joins us now, former superintendent of Park City Schools in Utah. Dr. Conley, thank you for joining us. How did we get here? You know, I I think the pure nature of uh, teenagers and how schools continue to be the hub of what's happening in the community. And we continue to have schools be that point of of those impulsive decisions that teenagers are trying and doing. And as, as we've seen throughout the years, right, like it used to be alcohol and it was the big thing with alcohol and then it was marijuana. And in the last few years, as with the opioid crisis continuing and with fentanyl coming online, it has created such an increase in danger where that impulsive decision making or that just trying to do new things that they shouldn't be doing has really wreaked havoc in our schools. But when we hear from officials, they're focusing so much on the borders, the borders, the borders, the border. But then you hear um, from the mothers in these articles and their sons or daughters are purchasing, purchasing what they think is Percocet or pills on Snapchat or wherever they're buying. What, what are we focusing on and are we focusing on the right thing? You know, it always comes back to education is key. Um, we have to realize that the pills are available in multiple ways, of course, Uh, you know, what you just heard, that they're in our parents and our elderly and even our our young people that are that have been hurt, that the opioids have been in the medicine cabinets. But the access of being able to get these drugs, I can I can guarantee that you could probably go to a group of eighth graders and they would be able to tell you who has the drugs and where to get them. And that's been one of the shockers of, of being in the schools of you don't think that our young children would know where and how, but they do. And right. with social media, with the way that we're continuing to consume social media, it is a real hazard for children. Okay, so what I hear you saying is basically prevention plans are outdated. So when you and I were a kid and it said say no to drugs, that's not working anymore. Because especially if you look at the CDC study in 2021, more than 40 percent of high school students feel sad or helpless. So are we not are we not reaching them where they're at? Are we not meeting them where they're at? I would have to say absolutely we're not meeting them where they are. As we look at our mental health crisis in the United States, as we look at the suicide rates in our in every state suicide has you know increased. Children are 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 self medicating with things that they have no idea the consequences of what is in what is in them. You know, take out the party scene, and really just that feeling of I want to feel better. And I've heard that fentanyl. I heard that pills might help. Okay, so when we talk about prevention, when we see these this millions and millions of dollars that the government is focusing on education and awareness, is that a step in the right direction? Are you pleased with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this never even was a that was this was not a conversation even 10 years ago. And at least now it's on the table. Our president is talking. So it's coming from the top down and now it's got to come from the bottom up 
where communities get involved with the risk factors of our children. And this is a major risk factor in every single community. And if there's one thing I could say is this does not have borders within socioeconomic divisions, racial divisions. This is this is hitting every single area of children and students. And so the number one thing we can do is say, first of all, we have an issue. We have a, we have a critical issue. Second of all, we've got to be talking to our children in different ways and asking them, you know, are you aware of, of these and the effects of these and how one pill, even if you try it can kill you. And these are those converse, right? These are the conversations that teachers are having to have. We're changing, having to change our health curriculum starting at third and fourth grade with, with addiction. Right. Well, Dr. Connolly, we're we're so grateful that you're here and we're trying to get the word out. As you mentioned, it's here. It's not coming here. It's already here. So uh, the sooner we have the conversations and, and get more awareness, the better. Thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, now to 2024, Vivek Ramaswamy is the new punching bag of the GOP presidential field under attack from all the sides. Just look at these headlines. New York Times writes, emulating Trump, Ramaswamy shows a penchant for dispensing with the facts. An editorial by Carl Rove in the Wall Street Journal goes a step further with the headline, Vivek Ramaswamy, political performance artist. And earlier this week, the Times published an op-ed dubbing him as, quote, annoying. Well, if your campaign is able to unite the the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, it looks like you're probably doing something right. You're getting attention. That's one thing. This, of course, is following what many pundits called a stellar performance from Ramaswamy last week in his first debate, where he was also the target of many of his fellow candidates. The problem that Vivek doesn't understand is he wants to hand Ukraine to Russia. He wants to let China eat Taiwan. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT. Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. I mean, you're all smiles if everyone's talking about you, right? The 38-year-old newbie has been trying to pitch his youth as an antidote to each of the party's current frontrunners. President Biden, if reelected, would be 86 at the end of his second term. Donald Trump, 82. The question of age is weighing heavily on Washington right now following a second incident yesterday in which Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell froze up during a press conference. What are your thoughts on running for re-election in 2026? What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. Oh, oh. that's good. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. It's a topic we've been hearing all day. Leader McConnell's doctors have medically cleared him to return to his schedule, but whispered concerns about the physical and mental capability of older U.S. leaders is certainly growing louder. It's an issue that doesn't seem to be going away since 2024 primaries are inching closer every day. With me now, award-winning journalist Emily Miller and Democratic strategist Kurt Bardella. Thank you both for joining. Emily, I would love to start with you because we're talking about candidates... Too old or too young? So, so where are we? Right, What's right. the perfect age? Right, right somewhere in the middle. Right, like somewhere you're not right. going to die in office, and you know, and you actually are constitutionally able to right. be president. 
I mean, th- th- that was obviously very sad yes. to see to watch um, Leader McConnell. But I, you know, I spoke to his staff. I spoke to staff just as we got here, and he's fine. He's going back into the office and staying on his same schedule. So um, he's fine. Um, it is, but it raises really what it is is we seeing Biden every day, and seventy-seven yeah. percent of Americans say Biden is too old to be in office. New book has come out says Biden has been tired when he's in office, and that's why he's not having events in the morning. So there is a real concern. Voters are going to have to look at that coming up in a year from November. Well, I mean, it's all we're going to be talking about. Kurt, I feel, you know what I also think is it's equal opportunity on both sides. Yeah. Because there, there is an, an age factor on both sides of the aisle. So we can't pinpoint it to the Democratic or the Republicans, right? I mean, Leah, let's be clear. Neither of these two people, assuming they end up being the nominees respectively, and Trump and Biden are, are spring chickens, right? I mean, as, as you said, if they were to finish their respective terms, they'd be in their 80s and, and, and deep into their 80s. That's not young. There's no other way to put that. And I, I do think that if there was a video like that of, of Senator McConnell, of Joe Biden, there would be a drumbeat chorus right now from the right saying, this guy needs to go right now. He's not fit to be there. We see the same thing on Dianne Feinstein. Again, it's not, this is not a partisan issue. This is, this is sad. It, it is sad to me that people are allowing themselves to deteriorate in public view and that some of the last images we're going to have of these people are, are like that. It, it shouldn't be that way. People should be allowed to go out with dignity and grace. And I'm sorry, but I don't believe any staffer right now who says, yeah, the senator is fine after right. something like that. No, and He's it, clearly not. And I feel as if this has happened in years past and we talk about term limits and then it just slowly goes away and we never hear about it again. I want to get in a little bit of, of Ramaswamy. And Emily, I want to start with you because, you know, if they're talking about you, then you're probably on top. But is yeah. that true? It, yeah. You know, do you feel that way? Are you hearing that? Well, I mean, Ramaswamy is at 7%. Right. But we're getting all the media coverage, but truly 7% of Republicans. So we're, we're at a very small number. That being said, he has taken all this media attention away from Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who is supposed to be the anti-Trump or the second choice to Trump. And now it's Ramaswamy. So he's going to get a lot of attention, positive and negative. And the man loves to do media interviews. So he's everywhere. So he's bringing it on himself. And it really is going to show that the Trump obsession, the Trump derangement syndrome, as you say, has now become the Ramaswamy derangement syndrome. It was the DeSantis derangement syndrome. It's whoever is leading in the Republican Party is going to get all the all the attention, and negative, I mean, mostly. And if they're talking about you're doing something right. I love yeah. how you brought up um, Governor DeSantis. And I, I want to go with, to you, Kurt, because, you know, the first thing I remember when uh, Adalia was making landfall and he was on air at a press conference way before it hit. And then he was on 20 minutes before. And he, I mean, it was campaigning by default. Right, I mean, right. is he shining? Is this going to help him? Well, it's like what Rahm Emanuel once said, never let a good crisis you know, go to waste. And, and certainly as the governor of a state where a major potentially catastrophic storm was going to hit, like, that, hey, this is your time. This is, this is what leadership should look like if you're going to play that card. I think that Ramaswamy's rise is kind of an indictment of DeSantis. Like, you were supposed to be the guy. You had all the money. Everyone was behind you to be the anti-Trump candidate. And yet at the debate, Ramaswamy was the guy taking up all the oxygen. Right. And his strategy, it kind of reminds me of how when Pete Buttigieg first came on the scene. Because Pete was doing all the interviews, getting all the media attention. He was younger, more dynamic. There was a lot of interest in that type of character juxtaposed with the older candidates. And, and we're seeing the same thing kind of happen right now with Ramaswamy. I love that. And the problem though with yeah. Ramaswamy is that he's got to have, conservatives are going, is he really conservative? And he was pro-vaccine. He was pro-mass. 
there's, he was anti-Israel funding. I mean, there's a lot of things coming out. And like, yeah, he seems really cool. Sort of like the celebrity factor we had with Obama years ago. We had with Trump, who literally is a celebrity. You know, Ramaswamy's got it. But then is he going to be able to keep this, maintain his momentum when conservatives start looking into his background going like, I don't even know what he's thinking now. He said this now and he said this before. Well, and that's a good point. And, and we're, we, we don't have uh, enough time, but there has been criticism of what he said in his book and what he's saying on the debate stage. And so I just want to leave it at, at that. But thank you both for joining us. That was really interesting. Appreciate it. So critics say if this is a case of maybe kicking a man when he's down or others say it's a brilliant business move. And I, I can say it right here. This is the name of the segment. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Conservative dad's ultra right beer. So do you see where I'm going with this? It's been nearly five months since Anheuser-Busch made a deal with transgender activist Dylan Mulvaney in an ad for Bud Light. This month I celebrated my day 365 of womanhood and Bud Light sent me possibly the best gift ever, a can with my face on it. Well, the backlash was swift with boycotts uh, called for after Bud Light became the poster beer for all things woke. Anheuser-Busch has lost over $27 billion in market value in just the past two months. That massive loss may just be the best thing that ever happened for one conservative dad. In fact, Anheuser-Busch has lost over $27 billion, as I mentioned, in just the last two months. So that's eight weeks. So that massive loss, as I mentioned, might be the best thing for that dad. I'm in high-speed pursuit of a conservative dad with a load of ultra-right beer. Hey, conservative dad here. Jump in. We're going to go for a little drive. I got a woke beer smoky on my tail. The woke beer corporations, earmuffs, hmm. with the wrong people. Never underestimate conservative dads on a mission. All right, so in contrast to Bud Light, sales have exploded. Seth Weathers, that conservative dad turned brewer, has certainly tapped into something. After the break, we'll have that story. Plus, a mom sues a school. Oh, I'm so sorry, Seth. It looks like I'm I'm going through a couple scripts here. So thank you so much for joining us. I've been been sort of flip-flopping here. Um, First of all, thank you so much for joining us. Tell me a little bit how, how sales are doing right now. Uh, it's doing great. So we actually just launched into actual stores. We're in retailers all across Georgia, Arkansas, and multiple other states are coming online here over the next few weeks and months. And keep in mind, we've only been in business for four months. So it's a pretty incredible. A, a beer companies spend lifetimes and don't have the type of distribution that we now have. So it's pretty exciting. And it's definitely, you, you can tell that we, we have a lot of people behind us. Of course. And I want to obviously congratulate you on that. But I do want to push you a little bit because what is going to be your secret to success? Because obviously you've had sex at success out of the gate, but sustaining that would be a challenge. I don't think sustaining is a challenge at all. I think that Americans have had enough of woke corporations taking our hard work, hard earned dollars and contributing those to the causes that we actively oppose. And so I think that having a company like ours that is making an incredibly great beer and we're taking our funds. Not only are we employing people here in America, but we're taking our funds and we're contributing to causes that are passionate issues for conservatives. Um, we're giving money to the 1776 project pack, which is they go around and they overturn school boards, getting rid of the, um, 
uh, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it, but the woke school board members and they're replacing them with just normal moms and stuff from the community. So that has a huge impact. And I think people like seeing that that's where their money's going. If they're going to be buying a beer and they want a great beer, by the way, our beer is better than other people's beer. I might be biased, perhaps. I don't know. But I do believe our beer is better and it's going to causes that you care about. Okay, causes that you care about. So, so when you talk about this, so how are you going to build a sustaining business model and support these issues at the same time? Because like I mentioned, I mean, it's, it is sort of a long road, right? Anheuser-Busch has been around for a long time. Uh, yeah, well, that's not the only person we're competing against. Again, we are we have we are the fastest growing new beer brand in the nation right now. And again, that's not something that comes at you every day. We had a, a unique scenario here, and we we've taken it and we've run with it, and we're producing an incredible amount of beer, and we're shipping it out literally by the tractor trailer load all over the place right now. And the thing is, we've got the support of the people. And so this is something I couldn't have started it. I couldn't have stopped it, but the people can. And the people right now are saying that they want conservative dad's ultra right beer and they're continuing to come back and buy over and over again. So as long as we continue to provide a great product, I think that the customers are going to continue being there. And again, we have right. distribution in thousands of stores already. It's, it's unheard of for that to happen for a beer company, especially as young as we are. So the fact well, that we have and- that level of distribution is incredible. And you're, if I'm not mistaken, in Georgia and Arkansas, how do you expand outwardly? Because those those are states that you would maybe perhaps think they would be interested. But, I mean, what's your well, plan for California? have me on in about 15 days, and I'll <laughs> tell you about a state that you would not expect us to have that we will also All have right. statewide distribution on. So we, we've already inked deals with multiple other states. There's a bunch of legal stuff, obviously, and regulation you have to go through when it comes to the distribution of beer. But we have many other states that are coming on board and some, you know, the obvious ones, but also some that might surprise some people. All right, Seth. Well, thank you for your patience, and thank you for joining us. Good luck. Cheers. Thanks. Take care. All right. Well, this time is for real. After the break, a mom suing after she says her daughters, teachers, and school officials encouraged her to transition. Up next, who won the legal battle and why? And that's quite a charge. NBA champs cry foul when a U.S. sprinter says they're not really champions of the world. So how does one become a world champion? Welcome back. Kids and trans rights. It's a topic we talk about a lot on the show. In fact, it's a hot topic just about everywhere. Who can best protect our children during their delicate years of development, parents or the state? Jessica Conan is a single mother who just showed the world that moms still know best. She won a landmark victory against the Spreckles Union School District in California. She claims her daughter was illegally transitioned at school and she's been awarded $100,000. And as we told you earlier this week, over in Chino Valley, California, the state is suing the school district because it requires teachers to notify parents if their child decides to change his or her gender. And stay with me here. There's a new bill headed to the California State Senate that would classify parents who refuse to affirm their child's chosen gender as abusive. Courts would then have the authority to remove that child from the home. Here's the author of the bill, Lori Wilson, and then a senator, Senator Scott Wilk, who opposes it. Many TGI children are not safe in their own homes because of a non-informing or abusive caretaker. This leaves many TGI youth to run away from home, leaving them vulnerable to housing, instability, expectation, and abuse. It just breaks my heart. I'm born and raised in this state. I love this state. I'm not going to stay in this state because it's, it's just too oppressive, and I believe in freedom. 
Joining me now is Jessica Conan and her daughter, Alicia, and their lawyer, Eric Sell, from the Center for American Liberty. Thank you three for joining us. Alicia, I want to start with you. First of all, thank you for being so open when we talk about this. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you were only 11 years old at the time. Can you walk us through what happened at school? Yeah, well, I just want to say thank you for having us. But I, it was a scary time for me. I had to hide stuff from my mom and it was horrible because we have such a close bond and I didn't want that to change. And I just, it was a horrible, scary time. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. You know, Jessica, um, I'm a mother of a daughter too. And I think the number one thing that you, you don't want as a parent is silence and secrecy because starting at a young age, if your kids are being quiet, it's something that you're unaware of. What was that like for you um, at that time? And were the counselors who were talking to Alicia also talking to you? Well, for me, it was more so um, a triggering time because like she said, our relationship has always been really close. And when you start noticing such a dramatic change and um, even with her emotional status, you know, a lot of things changed really rapidly and it makes you really concerned as a parent. Um, I did notice a lot when, you know, she would get home from school that a lot of things were changing and it's just, it was a really emotional and difficult time for us to try to work through. But um, ultimately at the end, you know, we did. And, even though we've been through a lot, um, I would say that there's a lot of accountability on, you know, people that my, my child trusted. Eric, I want to bring you in. I want to ask you, first of all, does this set a precedent for school leaders, counselors, administrators? And is it uncommon for counselors to say, you know, you're safe here. You don't have to bring this home to your family. Is this really happening? Well, this settlement certainly sends a message and, this type of stuff is happening across the country in schools across the country in probably all 50 states. Uh, and it's tragic. It's horrific. Schools are encouraging kids to keep secrets from their parents. Schools shouldn't be doing that. Schools should be fostering a relationship uh, between students and their parents and encouraging students to have strong family bonds. But instead, they're encouraging kids to keep secrets. Uh, and it's it's all rooted in policy. It's all rooted in in policy that says that teachers are required to keep this stuff secret from parents uh, unless the child tells them otherwise. Uh, but we all know that this is just a vehicle for ideology to infect uh, our public schools. So we're hopeful that this settlement sends a, a message loud and clear to these school districts across the country that if you socially transition a child in secret, there's a good chance you're going to get sued and there's a good chance you're going to have to pay a lot of money because of it. You know, Jessica, I, I certainly have younger parents, I, I, I'm or younger children, rather. I'm curious how we got here. You know, when you and I went to school, maybe it's because we didn't have cell phones, but we went to school to go to school. We went, we were in and we were out, right? You didn't really dilly-dally. So what is it like now for parents out there who might not have kids that are Alicia's age? Well, I, um, I have a young child myself, also second grade, and we're dealing with it already in her classroom and it's scary. They have, you know, inappropriate books in their personal little school uh, classroom libraries. They, um, you know, hang some type of flags. So it brings the curiosity. It's not so much that they may be talking about the flags and different ideology right away, but they do things in a way to kind of bring the attention where a curiosity would happen. Um, I feel that it's very dangerous for our young children. 
you know, even in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I, I really pray for the parents to get involved in the schools, get involved in the classrooms, the teachers. Um, it's a scary, scary world out there. You know, Alicia, before I let you go, and I, I know you're at a new school now, probably in an environment where you feel more comfortable, but at the time, um, explain to us before we let you go, you know, what you felt, what you were going through, and the pressures that maybe you wouldn't have had if there weren't an adult in the room. Well, I, like I've said before, it was horrible, but I was scared and I was confused. And overall, I had no idea who I was. I was completely stuck in an identity that was false. But as soon as I moved to a different school, I eventually learned that I was a girl and I was Alicia. And that's who I was. And that's who I always was. It was just masked with a false identity. Sure. Well, I mean, we're all a little bit confused at 11. So trust me, you're not alone. Alicia, Jessica, and Eric, thank you so much for joining us. We have reached out to Spreckles Union School District. Uh, They did not respond to our request for comment. We thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having us and for having us. All right, next up. It only took 83 words for an American sprinter to get nearly the entire NBA league and at least one hip-hop star to turn on him. Fresh off his win at the World Athletics Championship, Noah Lyles questioned what it means to be a world champion. I have to watch the NBA Finals, and they have world champion on their heads, Lyles said. World champion of what? The United States? Don't get me wrong, I love the U.S. at times, but that ain't the world. NBA All-Stars fell online to respond on Twitter. Kevin Durant, uh, Durant rather, a two-time Finals winner, wrote, Somebody help this brother. Four-time winner Draymond Green said... When being smart goes wrong, Devin Booker responded with an emoji and a holding hand to the face. Booker hasn't won an NBA final. But it didn't stop there. Even sports pundits decided to go after Lyles. I'm sure he's a good brother and a whole bit. He just came across as flagrantly ignorant. And that needs to be said. The, the NBA has established itself as a global iconic brand. Garrett Bush is here, host of the Ultimate Cleveland Sports Show. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I mean, I've been following professional sports for a long time. So when I see something like the World Series or the NBA World Champs, I mean, I thought that they were world champs. Have I been believing something wrong? Well, yeah, listen, it's not that you're believing something wrong. I I think it's all in the semantics. When you do win a championship, the NBA is known as the best league uh, in the world. Um, and I, I think when you look at the top of the food chain, when you have guys uh, like LeBron James and Steph Curry and even, you know, global icons like Michael Jordan, um, it's believed that the NBA is the top of the pecking order. And that if you do win an NBA, NBA title, um, you didn't play everybody in, say, South America or Euro leagues, but you did play the best competition. So they believe that they are the best in speaking to, um, saying world champions. However, no allows is not incorrect here. Uh, when you look at international play uh, from whether it be soccer, whether it be track and field, um, you compete against the best people and for your country uh, across your chest. So you are playing people, uh, the best guys and, and the best ladies uh, anywhere in, in the world. Uh, when you play in an international sport like track and field and no allows, I think is trying to bring awareness to how great um, USA track is track and field. And I think that's what he meant by that. 
Well, I mean, that's that's really my next question here is that are, are, is, is it deeper than maybe uh, some comments from fellow athletes? Because athletes talk and they talk smack. It was It's part of the game. But is it deeper than this? Are we not paying attention to some other athletes and more to others? Is that the, the track athletes are simply not getting the accolades that some of these other players are? Yeah, I think it, that, that's a really um, a, a really solid comment there because, you know, track and field, I have a lot of friends in, that, that play track and have played uh, and ran track and played professionally overseas. And those guys really believe that they don't get the same amount of attention, the same amount of endorsements, the same amount of um, respect as other athletes get. And so I think um, when you look at it from a standpoint of USA, um, USA track and field, the Jamaicans have been really the dominant force with Usain Bolt over the last, I would say, 20 years ago. Uh, and, and now Noah Lyles being – uh, the face of track and field uh, and Shakari Richardson and, and some of those uh, young guy, young young people, they're trying to drum it up and they're trying to really bring light to track and field and really show that they're into representing their, their country and representing their country on a large stage. So that, I think that's what he's trying to do. And to a certain point, that's his responsibility to bring it to yeah. the forefront. Sometimes, you know, you get in a little controversy and you may ruffle a few feathers, but um, at the end of the day, that's why I'm on the show and you're asking me about it because of what Noah said. Yeah, and listen, if, if you watched last week, they were all very impressive. So I would call them athletes. I would call them world champions as well. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Appreciate it. Anytime. It's switching gears after the break, a city in crisis, what the Windy City's migrant crisis has done to precincts, to hotels, even some schools. You're not going to believe your eyes and what's expected from taxpayers. This is absolutely unacceptable. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is absolutely unacceptable and ridiculous working conditions. OSHA doesn't want to do anything about it. The mayor's office doesn't want to do anything about it. Nobody seems to. That's the president of the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police showing the conditions at police stations currently housing hundreds of migrants. Right now, the city is caring for 8,500 migrants at city shelters, police stations, O'Hare International Airport. The numbers in northern sanctuary cities still pale in comparison to border cities. Since last August, 100,000 migrants arrived in New York 13,000 in Chicago. El Paso has received 327,000. So major cities like Chicago are trying to convert hotels and schools into shelters. 
Leland spoke with Ben Bradley, chief investigative reporter for our Chicago affiliate, WGN. All right, are we at a breaking point yet, Ben? I, I think in terms of people's patience, yes. Um, nobody here in Chicago thinks this is a great way to deal with the influx of migrants. We've got a busload on average arriving each day. You know, that video you showed from the Fraternal Order of Police, that was a walkthrough that he did yesterday. He went to station after station after station, and the scenes outside, as bad as they are, look worse after dark inside. There's the video there. These are the lobbies of police stations in Chicago. They've been turned into essentially campgrounds. Now the head of the Fraternal Order of Police is asking, where are the city health inspectors? Where's the fire department saying, we've got people blocking doorways? This is a violation of fire code. The head of the FOP lodge here in Chicago says, look, you know, can you imagine if this was happening in any other building? The city inspectors would be all over it. But they've looked the other way as uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson here in Chicago has been unable to find a solution. Yeah, I'm wondering about City Hall, uh, if the, outside the mayor's office, if there's encampments there. But um, I, I think about your interview with the FOP president and mm-hmm. sort of how the position police are being put in. Take a listen. We've had reports of migrants having sex in, in the lobbies. I mean, just the bed bugs, mice, German measles, chicken pox. I don't know where this ends, but the reality is we're coming up on winter. Winter in Chicago uh, is not really sustainable to have people outside on the streets for for days on end. Uh, You and I both know that. This would be the question, Ben, that you've got all of these neighborhoods that elected a very progressive mayor in Brandon Johnson, even more progressive than Lori Lightfoot, who they threw out. Um, And yet it's now these same residents who are so angry with this very progressive mayor's policy. What's going to have to give? You know, I think the issue is there is no policy. There is no plan uh, because, one, nobody thought this many would come. Nobody thought it would go on for this long. Keep in mind, the first busload of migrants sent here, uh, courtesy of Greg Abbott down in Texas, arrived one year ago. And I think there was an initial thought by the previous mayor, Lori Lightfoot, that, oh, this was just a, a publicity stunt. Maybe 100 or so people would come and then... You know, we would go back to the way it was, which was essentially people coming across the southern border and those southern states dealing with it or uh, the migrants just kind of melding into society. The problem here in Chicago is that uh, already shelters were at capacity. There isn't room to take on 13,000 additional people. And let me tell you, you go to the grocery store, you can see migrants outside. Um, asking for money. You go to the police stations, you drive by any of them, there's tents set up. And they're talking now about converting an old hotel. There's already some in the Standard Club, which was once this Tony private Chicago social club uh, that went out of business a couple of years ago. Uh, They're now migrants living in there. The sense is there isn't a plan, either at the local level or more importantly, at the federal level. Yeah, the New York Post uh, had a big, a big front page about uh, business owners in New York asking the Biden administration, where is the help? Where is the plan? How do we yeah. deal with this? Real, 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 real quick, Ben, um, what are residents? I'm thinking about the progressive residents, people who, who yeah. voted for Brandon Johnson around the south side of Chicago. All of a sudden, this is in their literally in their backyard. 
Yeah, well, it was interesting. We did see uh, a couple of uh, months ago a proposal to turn an old Chicago public school on the south side into a migrant shelter. And that community in a largely black neighborhood pushed back against it, saying we don't have the resources. Uh, There was a shelter that was run by private volunteers in the Pilsen neighborhood, a Hispanic community. It's having to close its doors uh, for uh, uh, a lack of funding, a lack of volunteers. So it's interesting because there is a lot of not in my backyard uh, but yeah. there are no backyards left. That, that is very well said. And certainly the people in El Paso, Dallas, Houston, uh, yeah. throughout, the, throughout the American South would say our backyard has been filled up for a, lo- for a long time. Uh, what, what, a, what a great point. There's a reason uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, our town hall on News Nation, brought up yeah. the south side of Chicago and how residents there were feeling um, about this issue. It is a national one. Uh, ben, great reporting as always. We'll talk soon. Good to be with you, Leland. You too, sir. All right, Leland, thanks for that. Next up, steer clear of this bull, the beast that made a mess of the Nebraska highway. Welcome back. We want to give you an exclusive look tonight at a ranch in Arizona that's at the center of an emerging debate about the border. Some landowners in the south, uh, southwest are finding evidence that migrants are passing through on their way from the border. One rancher in Arizona is now facing jail time for allegedly shooting and killing a Mexican national on his property. And that's stirring a debate both locally and nationally about how Americans are handling the rush of migrants. News Nation's Ali Bradley has an exclusive about the delay in this particular trial. This is where George Allen Kelly says all of his problems begin. The border wall, where migrants are regularly breaching that wall and ending up right here on his Kino Springs property. Property that has been littered with drug mules and human smuggling for years. Kelly reporting incidents to law enforcement multiple times, according to testimony. On January 30th, though, Kelly says he heard gunshots and thought two rival cartel groups or rip crews were going after each other. That's George Allen Kelly's house. And he was in his kitchen when he says that he saw at least five men running through his ranch wearing camouflage, carrying backpacks. He says some of them were even carrying rifles. George Allen Kelly then went out on his back porch and he says he shot warning shots over them. He maintains he never shot at any of them. Now, as those shots were being fired, the witness, DRR, says that they ran south, heading towards the border wall. And that is when the person he was with, Gabriel Cuembotamea, was hit by one of those bullets in the side, and he fell down right here. DRR then jumped over Cuembotamea's body, and he says he kept running. DRR was convicted in 2015 for bringing marijuana into the country. The state says he will testify in the trial as a key witness, despite being reluctant. Now, this is the wash or the arroyo that eyewitness DRR says that he ran through after Gabriel Cuembotamea was shot. DRR says he ran to the border wall, which is only about a mile and a half from here. George Allen Kelly called the Border Patrol Ranch Liaison, and they alerted the sheriff. Santa Cruz County Sheriff's deputies responding that night, January 30th, to shots fired and the possibility that something was struck. They searched this area of George Allen Kelly's ranch for hours, and they came up empty-handed. It was Kelly who eventually discovered Quen Butamea's body under a tree. Kelly then called authorities. He tells me he thought he was doing the right thing. All right, important story that we're following there. Allie Bradley, thank you for that report. 
Coming up, a Supreme Court ruling and prayers answer. Just ahead, we're hearing from a high school football coach who was back on the sidelines after a trip to the Supreme Court. Stay with us. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Veterans deserve to know about the best services available to them. VA's new radio outreach page is a prime source for that information. The page, news.va.gov slash outreach slash radio, houses public service announcements that educate veterans on a cross-section of topics. That's news.va.gov slash outreach slash radio. My mom has taken up going to the park to practice yoga. My dad's going to a club, but not a book club, a salsa club. Finding new hobbies comes with age. My mom has started getting lost and not knowing where she's going. Becoming lost or disoriented doesn't. Confusion with time or place may be a sign of Alzheimer's. An early diagnosis can help improve the quality of life for your loved one. Learn the warning signs of Alzheimer's at 10signs.org. Brought to you by the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Ma, is this how you feed a hamster? Uh, I think so. Is my homework right? Hmm, I think so. Is uh, this milk still good? Uh, I think so. When it comes to parenting, sometimes it's okay to think you know. But when it's something as important as your child's car seat, don't just think. No. Double check if your child is in the right seat for their age and size. It'll help protect them in a car crash. Don't just think. No. By visiting NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. As an adult, kids want to know you're listening to them. But they also want to listen to you. When it comes to alcohol, they want to know your expectations and how and why to avoid underage drinking. Talking early and often about it in everyday conversations reinforces your message and keeps lines of communication open. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. The Supplemental Security Income Program provides monthly payments to help meet basic needs, like putting food on the table, paying the rent, or buying new shoes for growing feet. You may qualify if your income and financial resources are low and you are 65 or older, or an adult or child with a disability or who is blind. Call 1-800-772-1213 or go to ssa.gov SSI to start to apply. Produced by Social Security at U.S. taxpayer expense. All right, son, time to put out this campfire. Dad, we learned about this in school. Oh, did you now? Okay, what's first? Smokey Bear said to. First drown it with a bucket of water, then stir it with a shovel. Wow, you sound just like him. Then he said. If it's still warm, then do it again. Where can I learn all this? It's all on SmokeyBear.com with other wildfire prevention tips, because only you can prevent wildfires. Brought to you by the USDA Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Thanks for listening to News Nation On The Go. I'm Marnie Hughes, and this is America's source for engaging and unbiased news. Being an Army Ranger is a very fast-paced lifestyle. I was clearing a weapons cache in Haditha, Iraq, when the building collapsed on me, burying me alive. I spent six months in the hospital and a year of recovery. When I was separated from the military, I just felt like I was useless because I only had this one thing that I was supposed to do, and then that one thing was taken away from me. But then one day, I got a call from Wounded Warrior Project. They asked me to come to a workout. 
And I decided that I was going to get better, both physically and mentally. Now I'm a warrior leader. I create events and opportunities for other veterans locally. The Wounded Warrior Project did a phenomenal job reminding me that my injuries aren't going to define who I am. And because of that, I can do anything that I want. See how we help warriors combat stigma at woundedwarriorproject.org slash combat stigma. You can always come up with an excuse for not visiting longtermcare.gov. Oh, I forgot. Game night. After all, who wants to admit that one day they will be, you know, old? Hey, do you see any crow's feet on this face? I don't. But since 70% of older Americans need some kind of long-term care, why not do some free planning now so you can stay in charge? Visit longtermcare.gov and find your own path forward. Welcome back. Renewed hope in the power of prayer tonight. We all know prayer, especially in school, can be very controversial. Just look at what happened to a high school football coach in Washington State who was fired for praying with his team during games. That is, until the Supreme Court intervened. It just showed the power that uh, prayer and God has in America that if the average Joe stands up, it's amazing what people can do. And we are excited to have much more on him and his incredible story tomorrow on Balance. But first, when police in Nebraska got a call about a guy driving around town with a cow in the passenger seat, they probably thought it was a prank, and if not, maybe it was a cute baby calf. But in Nebraska, perhaps red meat in the car is commonplace. Instead, they found Hootie Howdy Doody, a full-size bull riding shotgun in a specially designed seat that is, of course, his. Howdy doody. The owner takes howdy to fairs all across the state. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Elizabeth Pran in for Leland Vittert. He is off today because it is his birthday. Happy birthday, Leland, from the whole team. Of course, he's currently out on a very special assignment. Chris is next. 